Hey listeners, Nathan here. Before the episode starts, I wanted to let you know that the audio sounds a bit weird because we were trying to work out some bugs with the equipment when Ben was here. Right, Jimmy? <laughs> then what'd you think happened? Ben and I chatted on Skype? Sometimes, Jimmy. <sighs> Happy 2020, everybody. The conquest continues. Here's to the big one. Live from Ogasawara, this is the Monster Island Film Vault, Episode 8, Ben Avery vs. King Kong, 1976. Hello, kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. I am your host, Nathan Marchand, the curator of the Monster Island Film Vault. But joining me today is none other than podcaster and writer... Ben, Ben Avery. (laughs) Welcome, Ben. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. How about you? Is this your first time here on Monster Island? It is. I've been by it, but, you know, there was all that fog, and so we didn't, we weren't able to get too close. Fog? Um, oh, yeah. Sometimes we, we do have some fog issues. It's a little bit like Skull Island sometimes. Yeah, you know? I think it's from the oil deposits or something. I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I only, I didn't find out about the oil deposits until more recently. <laughs> I mean, what are you going to do with them, you know? Still unrefined. And, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think. What did I hear? I think, what was it, like another 10,000 years, I think? You needed to cook a little bit longer. That's why there aren't any oil companies showing up here and bothering us all the time. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thank you once again, Ben, for stopping by. You're not the first guest I've had outside of what I like to call the golden ticket tourists, you know, my core group of co-hosts. But you're still a welcome addition here. I've heard you're a huge monster fan. I mean, I've been listening to your podcast for a long time, so I know all about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you've joined me on my podcast to talk yes. about huge monsters. So. Yes, I have uh, several times, actually. <laughs> we were in talks to do another episode, but it hasn't quite worked out. But we'll, uh, we'll try Sometimes. to get that put together at some point. Yeah. But today, you are joining me on the next leg of what I like to call the Conquest, <laughs> <laughs> where we'll be talking about the 1976 remake of King Kong, produced by Dino De Laurentiis. The mighty Peking man. I think, oh, oh, not not that one. That was 77, (laughs) wasn't it? (laughs) Yeah, 77, 78, somewhere around there. It was basically because of this movie is why that movie exists. I know, it's it's crazy how many King Kong knockoffs were inspired by this movie. And then after that, our toku topic for today will be the 1973 oil crisis. But before we get to any of that... Yes, Jimmy, I'm getting to it. I need to fulfill my contractual obligations by reading Jimmy's entertaining info dump to get everyone caught up on this movie before we dive in. Kong is a savage but lovelorn force of nature and a giant gorilla worshipped as a god by the island natives. While he presumably ate the maidens offered to him, he is enamored with Dwan, so he fights men and monster to protect and possess her. He displays anthropomorphism such as curiosity, attraction, and loneliness. 
The only other monster in the film is a vicious giant snake that attacks Kong presumably to eat Dwan and or to defend its territory. Jack Prescott is a determined and sarcastic primate paleontologist who sneaks aboard the Petrox Explorer to see the fabled island himself. He later strives to rescue Dwan from Kong and protests the exploitation of the big ape. The ditzy but kind Dwan is a struggling actress who was lost at sea trying to make her big break in showbiz. After being offered to Kong by the natives, she at first tries to escape him, but later comes to quote-unquote love him. Fred S. Wilson, a greedy and conniving Petrox executive, leads an expedition to the mysterious island to find a gigantic untapped oil reserve. When that proves fruitless, he captures Kong to exploit him as a corporate mascot. The intelligent and snarky Roy Bagley is a scientist advising Wilson during the expedition, while the dutiful Captain Ross commands the ship on behalf of Petrox. While the legend of Kong is discussed by the characters and motivates Jack to stow away on the ship, the human and kaiju plots are separate until the characters reach the island, at which point they are unified. Then their actions revolve around capturing, saving, or killing Kong, and Kong's actions are dedicated to finding or protecting Dwan. While presented in a sympathetic light, Kong is the problem. The natives built a huge wall to keep Kong out and offered maidens as sacrifices to placate him. Jack and first mate Carnahan lead a search party to find Dwan, encountering Kong at a log bridge. Kong shakes the log, killing all but Jack and crewman Bone. A giant snake attacks Kong, which allows Jack to rescue Dwan, but the creature is quickly killed by the big ape. After breaking through the wall, Kong falls into a pit trap created by Wilson and company, where he is knocked out by chloroform. Kong is distressed while imprisoned in the Petrox Explorer cargo hold, but is calmed by Dwan. In New York, Kong breaks free of his chains, finds Dwan, and climbs the World Trade Center because it resembles mountains on his island. Soldiers ascend the South Tower and attack Kong with flamethrowers, but he jumps to the North Tower with Dwan in hand. He kills the soldiers by throwing debris at them. The problem is solved when the military sends in Huey helicopters that riddle Kong with bullets until he falls to his death on the street below. The screenplay by Lorenzo Semple Jr. is a simple adventure story with a trio of key characters, a romantic subplot, and a satirical edge. However, it moves at a more deliberate pace compared to the 1933 original. At the time, this was the most expensive film made in Hollywood, and it shows. Producer Dino De Laurentiis spared few expenses, although he did nix things like the inclusion of dinosaurs to avoid expensive and time-consuming stop-motion animation. The Oscar-nominated special effects were supervised by Carlo Rambaldi and Rick Baker, the latter going uncredited as the suit actor for Kong. Rambaldi constructed several large props used in the film, such as the giant hands and the much-hyped Big Kong, a life-size mechanical replica of the Eighth Wonder that was essentially a huge version of the tiny models used in the 1933 film. The mechanisms within Baker's mask gave it tremendous expression. Other techniques used included rotoscoping, force perspective, and miniatures. For the most part, the effects look good, although Baker credits cinematographer Richard H. Klein for making the Kong suit look passable. The on-location scenery in Hawaii is gorgeous. This is a gritty film with a dark, self-aware sense of humor and a moderate amount of gravity steeped in 1970s cynicism. While it aims for realism, it also has a fairy tale like quality to the narrative. De Laurentiis and company knew going in that the film would be a risk because it dared to remake what was seen as a nigh-perfect classic. This is why they said it in present day, made Kong's interest in Dwan plainly sexual, and had Dwan be affectionate toward the big ape and not simply afraid of him. While these had been done in the Japanese Kong films in one way or another, 
They were bold departures for an American Kong film. This film reinforces the style of the 1933 King Kong by following the same premise. An expedition to an island finds a giant gorilla who becomes enamored with a human woman before being transported to New York and even has some of the same plot beats and set pieces. The film came about after the death of Marion C. Cooper in 1973, which made RKO relax its quote-unquote no-remake rule and the huge popularity of disaster movies throughout the early to mid-1970s. De Laurentiis, like many who worked on the film, was a huge fan of the original and wanted to see it redone using modern effects and sensibilities. To that end, it was intended to entertain a general audience as well as Kong fans. Due to an accelerated and often troubled production schedule, the film's budget kept increasing, rising to an estimated $24 million. However, it earned $90.6 million, making it the third highest grossing film of 1976 behind Rocky and the documentary short To Fly, and the fifth highest grossing film of 1977. It was well received by viewers and critics alike, although many have criticized it for not living up to the original or being too campy. An extended three-hour cut of the film was aired on NBC in 1978. It featured numerous extended scenes and a few edits to make it more suitable for television, such as toning down the gore of the snake fight and Kong's death. This material doesn't add much and was originally removed to improve pacing. There are multiple forces at play. It's noted briefly that an energy crisis is happening, which prompts Petrox to search for oil reservoirs in exotic locations. Wilson describes Jack as a hippie, indicating a disdain for American counterculture. Jack, in turn, calls Wilson an environmental rapist, implying Jack is an environmentalist. Modernism clashes with superstition when the characters arrive on the island and meet the natives worshipping Kong. The natives attempt to trade six of their maidens for Dwan so that they may placate their god, showing that women are seen as property. Nature clashes with civilization when Kong runs amok in New York. Jack's compassion runs counter to the commercialism and showmanship of Wilson overusing Kong as a mascot. The prying media bars Jack and Dwan from each other at the end. Unlike the original film, there are intentional subtext and themes. Wilson's bribery of a certain Washington official serves as something of a commentary on Watergate. As a character, Wilson represents quote-unquote big oil as greedy and exploitative corporations who care only about their bottom lines, which expresses an anti-corporate sentiment that was becoming more common at the time. Jack tells Wilson that by taking Kong, they have robbed the natives of purpose and the island will be filled with quote-unquote burnt-out drunks in a year. The exhibition of Kong is a satirical denunciation of corporate commercialism. While Dwan naively pursues celebrity, she comes to hate it after seeing Kong exploited and killed. It can be inferred that despite his savagery at points, Kong is more civilized than his human captors. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations! On to some Taku Talk! Thankfully, we've gotten that out of the way. Let's get into the meat of this. So... Before we go any further, Ben, yeah, what's, yeah. Your, what's your history with this movie? I mean, obviously, this wasn't your first time. This is another thing that's a little bit different about my other guests. Tonight here on Monster Island was not your first time seeing this movie. No, it was the first time watching it with you know actual monsters nearby. Definitely not the first time I've seen this movie. I saw this, well, I guess seeing the movie happened, I don't know, it'd be mid-80s. But I was aware of this movie a long time before that because... Uh, I was born in 74, so I didn't get to see this in the theaters, and I did, I'm did. i pretty sure I didn't watch any of it on TV 
but boy, was I aware of it because the poster, that, that poster of Kong and the World Trade Center, uh, that was everywhere. It just in all sorts of, you know, magazines, sci-fi magazines, the monster books. I don't know if you ever saw any of these. This, this is something that was definitely a product of the library, school libraries, but they had these orange monster books. And I can't remember the title. I can't down, say that uh, I've seen those. Yeah, well, these are things that people of my generation will talk about fondly. Uh, I don't know of anyone who actually owns them, and if you find them on eBay, they're going for hundreds and hundreds of dollars. But I oh think my that's gosh. because they're primarily <laughs> they're primarily a, a library offering. You know, like libraries would get these books, and they had one about Godzilla, and that was how I knew about Son of Godzilla was because I saw a picture of him in that, and they had one that was about the Wolfman, and they had one about Dracula, and it was all about them in movies. And so there was the King Kong one that my, my school had. This is, you know, first, second grade, something like that. And that, that poster was in there and the, you know, had all these different pictures of all the different Kongs, you know, from, well, from the, the, the original Son of Kong and then, you know, King Kong versus Godzilla. And then, and then this, this one, which had just been out, you know, for maybe two or three years when that book was published. And, and yeah, so I, I was aware of this thing. But I didn't see it until I was in junior high, and I caught it on my parents' black and white TV uh, and watched basically all of the New York stuff. The, the jungle stuff I didn't get to see on, on that, uh, but it was on a Saturday afternoon, you know, in syndication kind of thing, and watched that. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. I actually saw that before I saw King Kong versus Godzilla, oh. uh, which was another thing that was kind of an annual tradition from one of our stations on that, again, that Saturday or Sunday afternoon which I watched on the same black and white TV, although that time it was with my parents or with my dad anyway. So basically, you know, other than seeing the original Kong in different sci-fi specials on TV, they're like about special effects and how do they do that and that kind of thing. So I'd see the original Kong, the stop motion stuff, but not the actual movie itself. The, my first experience to the actual movie featuring a King Kong was this movie. Granted, it was half of this movie, but it was, it was this one. I see. And... That. Yeah, and so then it wasn't until later that I was able to get the DVD and watch the whole thing. And I've seen it a few times now because I like it a lot. I'm going to cut to the chase on that, but I really like this movie. And part of it is just 70s, just that 70s vibe. <laughs> part I, of it is that it's I've listened to your show enough to know that movie. you have a thing for 70s movies. Yeah, and I don't understand it exactly. I, every once in a while I try and analyze, self-analyze, you know, what is it about the 70s that I care about so much? And, and I don't know what it is because it's not a great decade. But <laughs> some of the movies, though, I mean, this is this is an important movie just in cinema history uh, yeah. because this is one of those first round of blockbusters that was coming out of Jaws with its wide release. Yes, it and, was, and it was very much riding the Jaws wave at this point. Yeah, yeah. And so th this is one of those where lots of money was spent on it. Lots of money was made by it. Um, I think it gets overshadowed then by 1977 with, with Star Wars oh, being yeah. the special effects extravaganza. And then you also throw Superman in there. Yeah. And it's also a shift of cinema moving from that gritty reality of like, well, Serpico, which was actually produced by Dina DeLaurentiis. Yes. But, um, but those 70s cop things and those 70s cinema verite kind of thing. And you have this kind of shift toward the escapism of Jaws, of King Kong, of Superman, of Star Wars. And then that's where you start looking at the big, 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 big box office numbers oh, yeah. that were coming from movies. And I think people realizing on the studio end, we want, we want good stuff that people want to see instead of stuff that people feel bad about because it's too much like real life. Yeah. 
yes, Jimmy, uh, I think it would be a good idea to add those orange monster books to the Monster Island Library. Anyway, <laughs> but my you know, if history. If you find them and they're cheap, please, please uh, let me know because uh, I would love to add them to. Uh, I don't really have a base of operations right now, but oh, <laughs> yeah. uh, I'll uh, tell the librarian here to see if she can start a you know an interlibrary loan system out of the island. That would be great. That would be great. <laughs> yeah, my history with this movie is kind of interesting. If I remember correctly, I'm pretty sure the first Kong film I ever saw, interestingly enough, was King Kong versus Godzilla. It's actually the reverse of your story. And then after that, I was mildly obsessed with finding the original King Kong. I read the, the Lovelace novelization and I'm like, I have to see this movie. It's such an important movie. I really want to see this movie. But unfortunately, being a kid growing up without cable TV, it's not like I could just turn on TCM and there it was. Right, right. So I was just going to video store after video store after video store, just hoping against hope that I could find it. Didn't have much luck. Finally, I just decided, okay, I, you know, the 76 version is here. I'll at least watch that. And even though I hadn't seen the original, (laughs) I will admit my, my first viewing of this film, I was not a fan. (laughs) I was disappointed. It just did not, it just didn't feel quite right. I don't know what it was. Just something in me just recoiled a little bit at this movie. (laughs) There is stuff to recoil against. Uh, Don't get me wrong. (laughs) When I say I like this movie, there's stuff that I, it's uncomfortable. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But then eventually I was able to track down the original, watch the original. I adore the original, but you know, I just, I didn't, feel a a real big compunction to return to this one for the longest time until I I got the job here on Monster Island and then realized, okay, if I'm going to cover Kong films, I need to watch this one again. Professionally obligated, yeah. Yes, professionally obligated. You know, those those dang contracts and the board of directors and all that goofiness, man, I got to tell you. Plus, Kong already got so excited I was covering his movies, he yelled at me in the first episode. So I don't really want him yelling at me on the air again. (laughs) except this time he'll be angry. Anyway, I will admit, watching it again in preparation for this episode, my opinion has softened. It's better than I remember, though I still wouldn't call it great, (laughs) if that makes any sense. Well, it totally does. But I I do find it interesting. Uh, you know, this is, this is a throwback in some ways. They they didn't want to do the stop motion because it wouldn't look too realistic. And so, you know, they're going back to the man in suit. This is a circle. You know, you've got Godzilla that's inspired by King Kong. And now you have King Kong here that's inspired by the Godzilla franchise because of the way that they brought the monster man in suit to life. And now there's more to it than that. But I, I it's an interesting circle. You can see where pop culture feeds itself. Yeah, although I have to admit there is something about that that I'm mildly annoyed by, which is the special effects in this movie got nominated for an Oscar, but the same techniques that were, you you mentioned, you know, these same techniques were used in Japanese monster films, and those were mocked for years by critics as being cheap. But then they do the same thing in this movie, and he he almost wins an Oscar. Well, I mean, (laughs) part of it was that it was American cinema. Probably. And, yeah. <laughs> and I will admit, and, and the things part of it was a different, the time, you know, the, the craft of, you know, Godzilla from the 60s and what they put in with the craft here in the late 70s, they had more to work with. You know, I mean, they were redefining blue screen technology with this movie. Yes, they were. And, 
you know, I mean, so I, I think it's deserved, but you know, it, it's a different kind of artistry too. Like the artistry that goes into a Godzilla movie is more about the, the miniatures, you know, and, and, and the suits, you know, and the artistry that went into this, there was a lot more at this time put into the special effects. Now later, you know, as you're getting into the, the eighties and nineties with the Godzilla movies, they were also trying to use, maybe not push, but use modern special effects. Yeah. There is something to be said about the difference in culture and the difference in budgets as well. This was a big budget Hollywood movie. In fact, it went over budget (laughs) from what I was reading. The whole genesis of this movie is one ridiculous story that honestly could fill an entire book with all of the studio politics and the the lawsuits and everything else that went into it, some of which I'll actually be talking about in a in a future episode. I mean, one of the funnest thing about those lawsuits, though, is you have Universal and you have Paramount, I think. Yes. And they're they're both talking about we're going to do this movie. Universal gets a payout and settlement for not doing anything. Like <laughs> all that Universal did to get money was, hey, we're going to make this movie that's going to be parallel to yours. And the others are like, well, no, you're not because we have the rights. No, we have the rights. Universal gets money out of it and didn't have to do a thing. <laughs> they got paid to not make a movie. And I think they came out on top. Yeah. And as a result of that, you also have then Peter Jackson's King Kong. Yeah. But, yeah. Which again, future episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned that you know, you're a fan of 70s movies. And I have to say, watching this again, I was struck by just how 70s this movie is. You were talking about this was coming <laughs> yeah. about at a time when 70s cinema was shifting a bit from that gritty cynicism, I guess you could say. You know, your dirty Harry's, your, mm-hmm. your your death wishes and things like that. It was moving more toward, I guess you could say, kind of the old-fashioned, whimsical sort of cinema like your Star Wars and your Superman and all of that. And I feel at like... Least, at least family-friendly. Yeah, but I feel like this movie... You know, like I said, writing that Jaws way, but not quite at the Star Wars era. You know, the post-Star Wars era, I should say. Right, right. This one, it very much feels like that transitional movie because there are elements of whimsicalness to this, but at the same time, it still feels very much drenched in that 70s cynicism <laughs> quite a bit. In fact, that was done intentionally. That's why they made certain changes that they did to the script and to the story in this film because they realized the, the things that were part of the 33 original are just not going to play well to a modern 70s audience because the modern 70s audience at the time was much more cynical. You know, we're talking, this is right after Watergate and all kinds of things at that point. And, you know, and you can see that throughout this film. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, they even reference Nixon. Um, that's, uh, that's one of the, that's the politician, potentially the politician that, leaked some information yeah, about yeah. this island yeah, to Fred allow Wilson, them to find the island. Yeah, Fred Wilson yeah. strongly implies that he got top-secret photographs from the president. Yeah, He doesn't say it outright. He just says, might be a certain politician who lives on Pennsylvania Avenue. I mean, yeah. <laughs> which is kind of a oblique reference to something like Watergate and things like that. Jeff Bridges, the dude himself. <laughs> he was only 26 <laughs> years old when he was in this movie. It's one of his breakout roles. He's presented in, you know, he's a very 70s sort of dude. He even gets called a hippie, I think, at least once. In this he, he does, yeah. Although, what's interesting about his character here is he, he's not in this to shut down the corporate greed that's happening. He's in this because he wants to study the monkey. Yeah. You know, he, 
he wants to get to this island. He heard that they might be going there. He heard that they got the chart, and he's there to, to learn about the monkey. He's an anthropologist, mm-hmm. and, you know, he wants to study the beast. So he doesn't quite go into full hippie land, you know, but he's close. I mean, he's rocking that beard. Oh, yeah. Like <laughs> and the hair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, but on the other hand, you do have elements in this that feel more fantastical in nature. I actually read in the it's a King Kong History of a Movie Icon by Ray Morton, one of my go-to sources on this podcast, said that the, yeah, the screenwriter, book. the screenwriter Semple, intentionally put in the the part at the beginning was like, how do we introduce Dwan, the girl? They find her in a raft, you know, that was floating out in the ocean. At first, they weren't sure if they wanted to do that because they thought that would break the realism of the movie. But they said, let's do it at the beginning as this you know, one little bit of romantic fantasy to transition everybody into the rest of the movie, which I thought was an interesting decision. And they attempt to infuse the the rest of the film with a little with something of a fairy tale atmosphere. I don't think it works as well as they want to think it does. <laughs> No, I, it doesn't, it, it, because even then you have the fantasy and you have the whimsy of just finding her in the middle of the ocean, you know. But then she's on that raft because she didn't want to watch, uh, you know, a porn movie. <laughs> you know, throat. she didn't want to watch Deep Throat. Uh, and so she was on this boat. Movie producers and other, you know, wannabe actresses are there. And, you know, she's she's out in the middle of nowhere. She can't go anywhere, but she doesn't want to watch this, which is, you know, kudos to her, you know, to to stand up for herself in that way. But when the storm comes, she's on a raft and everyone else is, you know, get the impression that there's just a night of debauchery is happening. Um, and she's looking for a big break, but she's getting out of it, you know? And so you, you still have that seventies grit, you know, you still have that cynicism. You still have that, that, that sliminess of the seventies, you know, it's just kind of permeating. Yeah, you're right. This, this is, it, it straddles the two you know just like king kong straddles the two towers of the world trade center and that, oh. that famous poster but um yeah it, it, it tries to straddle it does a pretty good job you know it knows what it wants to be it's taking itself seriously but also throwing in jokes you know and and the jokes are coming from the people and the campiness is coming from character types but it's taking itself seriously there's a big giant ape and they're not winking at the camera you know they're they're genuinely talking well what do we do about this how do we bring this in you know and mm-hmm. yeah. he, he says he lived through the 70s he can vouch for the grit and slime yeah i mean you weirdo <laughs> how does that work I, I, never mind <laughs> i lived through some of the 70s but i was you know six when i left the 70s so yeah you know it's interesting that you bring up the jokes and the stench on me but not the grit <laughs> it's interesting that you bring up the jokes in this because uh, when I was reading the the Ray Morton book, it mentioned that one of the things that they wanted to do in order to make this play better, and I think this, again, stems from that 70s cynicism, they put in those jokes that were kind of self-aware. <laughs> and I really started to notice that this time watching it. Jeff Bridges literally says when they go into, uh, after they go through the gate on the wall after Kong has taken Dwan and... Fred Wilson continues to disbelieve that there actually was a giant ape or anything there. And he says, what do you think happened? Some dude in a ape suit came through, it came out and took her away or something like that. Like, Oh my gosh, movie. (laughs) Well, I mean, it can be read two ways though, because there actually was a guy in an ape suit leading the ceremony. That's what I mean. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there actually was a guy who was one of the Islanders who was leading the ceremony wearing that, 
it's a cool suit. You never really get a good view. It's always from afar. You're always kind of looking at it from the perspective of, of the team that's like hiding and, and watching it happen. But yeah, I mean, it, in universe, it makes sense. The, the statement makes sense. Yeah, it, it does. It does. But, it, uh, but it's yeah. also kind of, it's also really meta at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, it's almost it's like the movie's a little bit self-aware, and, you know, and there were that was the I can't I know there were other instances of that, but that's the first one that comes to mind right now. <laughs> but since we're on the, the subject of the characters, you know, we've been hinting at this a little bit throughout our conversation. Let's talk about them a little bit. So we've yeah, already talked yeah. a bit about Jack Prescott, who's essentially the Jack Driscoll of this movie. He's the male lead, <laughs> the romantic lead, I suppose you could say as well. Yeah, because Kong, I think, is the, the male lead. Here. Oh, yeah, probably. Yeah. So Rick Baker, you know, who did most of the work in that suit. And kudos to him. I mean, he... I read so much about just the the hell that he went through <laughs> being in that suit. It was not always fun. <laughs> but then we have Dwan. She actually spells out her name, D-W-A-N, yep. because she says she switched a couple of letters to make it more memorable. So yep. she's yep. our Andero in this, played by Jessica Lange in her first ever movie. Now, I will admit, I know Jessica Lange a little bit better by name than anything else. <laughs> But I know she was a big deal back in the day. She she was. I mean, after this, and, and actually this might have shut down her being a big deal uh, if she hadn't taken time off then after this, taking some acting classes, and then, you know, once, you know, Academy Awards. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. I, uh, it, it, for what I've read, it actually did hamper her career a little bit because she got, she got pigeonholed as a dumb blonde because of her role in this movie, because apparently she is as opposite from Dwan as you could possibly get. Yeah. But I mean, she was a get, I mean, she, again, she played it seriously. She played it seriously and took it seriously. Now she gets some of the dumbest lines too, because <laughs> chauvinist she, pig ape. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, you got to give her a little bit of slack in that scene. Uh, she's given some pretty dumb lines, but she sells them. She tries very hard. I will say that she tries very hard. That's just my thing. I, I get what they were trying to do. I know people make fun of Ann Darrow all the time and Fay Ray and her performance and all that. She, you know, they joke that she just spends all of her time screaming and, and all of that stuff. But honestly, I think I prefer Ann to, uh, to Dwan. Dwan is a little too much of a ditz <laughs> i think it doesn't endear me to her as much as Anne was endeared to me yeah you know there were some parts at the beginning though that endear duan <laughs> i'm gonna change my name to buen by the way just, you know, <laughs> make it more exciting uh there, there's some things that she does i mean first of all leaving the the room when when they're putting on something that's uncomfortable to her you know and and you know, but the other thing is, toward the beginning, you get this impression that she was doing this thing. She wants to be an actress, and she's going to go to Hong Kong, you know, to to be in some some films there. And you just get the impression that she realizes, you know, I never was going to make it, and I know I was never going to make it. I I was kind of uh, there's a self awareness, and I don't know if it's so much maybe it's not in the character, maybe it's in Jessica Lange, the, the self awareness that, that <laughs> brought to it at that moment, but. I just feel like, you know, you're looking at someone who realizes her dream is if she's not going to get her dream, she's certainly not going to get it the way she's going after it. It is interesting. I, I can't remember where I read it, but I read something about where it was like, 
it might have been the Ray Morton book even. Okay. Where you know it's all about wanting to be an actress. She wants to be an actress. She wants to get in front of the cameras and be you know someone special and be you know a star. And then at the end of the movie, she's finally in front of the cameras. You know, and yeah, everyone's taking pictures of her. And and I had never thought of it that way. And I I love that uh, interpretation. Uh, well, and it, it's but. interesting because she. She doesn't seem very happy at that point. No, no. I, w- I actually found myself actually liking the ending more than I remembered it the, the first time I had seen this movie. There were several things, actually, that were altered about the ending because of test screenings. The For one thing, and we'll talk about him in a few minutes here, but Fred Wilson originally was not supposed to die in the original script, but test audiences hated him so much that they were disappointed he didn't die, so they re-edited yeah. the scene to make it look like Kong did step on him. When originally, here's the weird thing about that scene. I, I went. I wanted to look up and see some of this extra footage. They, I mean, they they put this on TV, and they do, they've done this with a few different movies. Yes, the, when they put it the, on TV. The TV they put version it on as was two, three hours long. Yeah, it was four hours long. Well, four, three and a half well, hours. Yeah. I mean, with with yeah. commercials, it was three. Yeah, mm-hmm. but um, but a four hour night. You know, you have two hours on one night, two hours the next night. You put in commercials, three hours long. A lot of extra scenes. The scene with Wilson when the foot comes down. Uh, that was the only scene that I found in a, as a quick search on YouTube for deleted scenes. The foot comes down and comes back up and you see his hat and you're supposed to see that the foot did not land on him. I watched that scene on YouTube. I remember seeing that and I don't know if I actually remember seeing it. I, I'm not sure then what, what that means about like what version I saw when I was a kid, but certainly not the DVD that I have. Yeah, you uh, may have. You probably saw the extended TV version. Which, I, I, lucky I don't know. Lucky you because but, that's never been made commercially available. Not even the the scenes that were added to it. You can't even watch those as a special feature or anything. There's a, there's a European Blu-ray that got released that has, I think 10 or 15 minutes of uh, deleted scenes. Okay. But uh, that's still not all of it, but we got the Superman, you know, um, mm-hmm. they did that with Superman. I still and need to they, see that. They released that cut. Yeah. And that had, you know, some special scenes to me. I, I saw Superman in the theater uh, when it first came out. I was three. I remember nothing about it, but I remember seeing some of those scenes when it was on TV. And then I get, the DVD or rented it on VHS or whatever and, and watched it. And those scenes were gone. I'm like, where's the machine guns? They're gone. It was on for the special television broadcast. And we will not get the 1976 King Kong television broadcast cut because there's just no market for it. Yeah. But, but maybe Jimmy, Jimmy, you could procure that. Couldn't you? Really? You think oh. you can track that down? Oh, good luck to you. <laughs> That'll be an impressive get, I gotta say. Well, if he finds it, bring me back to the island. I, oh. I, I must see. But. <laughs> Did Jimmy show you his garage? He's got some cool stuff in there to fly people back and forth. I have not. You know, I came straight from the dock. Hey, Jimmy. I, I had to hurry. Yeah, you give Ben a tour of, the, of your garage after this, okay? What I find fascinating about the ending is not only did they change that, but there was a scene at the bar between Jack and Dwan where mm-hmm. Jack said that he would only really be interested in being in a relationship with Dwan if Kong lived. And then Kong dies the way the it was originally scripted when she's being surrounded by all the reporters and everything. He sees her, sees that Kong is dead, and then turns around and walks away. But they decided that that was too much of a downer. Go figure. You know, the, the jaded 70s, and they decide that this is too much of a downer. <laughs> it was a jerk move. Yeah. It was and, a jerk move. Yeah. yeah. So they cut out that part of the conversation and then re-edited that scene so that it looks like he just can't get through the crowd to her. But even then, that ending is 
still a little bit ambiguous and still a little bit sad because our two lovers are separated by all of this stuff. And I found myself sitting there looking at this, wondering what exactly are we supposed to get out of this scene? I had a couple of ideas about what that was supposed to be. The big question I was asking myself when I saw that is, is he unable or unwilling to get to her? He's blocked off by the media who are glamorizing this tragedy and he's, I'm thinking he's either repulsed by what he sees because she's being turned into this celebrity or is she being blocked off by everybody and she just can't get to him? So they're, they're being yeah, blocked well, off by the media sensationalizing everything, but who's the one who's unwilling or unable to get to the other one? On her part, I think she's she does not want to be there because she, well, she went there to Kong because he is dead and he meant something to her. But now that they're surrounded, uh, she doesn't want to be there and, and she's trapped. She's trapped. And it, it, it's interesting, you know, as you're looking at thematically where she leaves the boat, she's on, you know, she's on the raft after the boat goes down and they just find her. And she's just now thrown into the situation where she has, and she's just pushed from one thing to another, to another, to another. She's captured by the, the guys from the Island. She's captured by Kong. She, has a connection with Kong uh, and, but he's being pulled from one place to another. So she's tethered to him in some ways. And then when she finally can run away, they don't run away. And then she gets caught again by Kong. And she's again, just taken from one place to another, to another. And this is just the last place that she ends up in this place where she's near this dead animal. That is something she actually kind of cared about one way or another. We can talk about what that means. I mean, the, the movie was written as a love triangle. Yeah, and, which and is the, the relationship between Kong and Dewan uh, is meant to be on Kong's part romantic, and it's written that way. You know, he's not the beast that was in the original. Mm-hmm. He's he's more humanized. I don't know what it means. I don't know how it works. Could you fall in love with Thumbelina? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I guess you could if you liked her personality. You know, and, and maybe, maybe that would work. You know, well, but, it's it's um, funny that you mentioned that because in my research I found out that sci-fi author Philip Jose Farmer actually wrote a short story that was a sequel of sorts to the original movie that dealt with that in a disturbing fashion from what I understand. But <laughs> That's what I was talking about for this movie when I said that there are some things about this that are still kind of, it's cringy. Yeah, you know? it's, and that's, and, I, and, and I do want to talk about that. here. I don't think it was intentional in the original. In the original, it was, I'm a monster, here's this thing, I'm keeping it, you know. Yeah, mine. Stay away. Here, it's I think supposed to be that there there's love there, and that is the part of this movie that I think was the part that I recoiled against the most when I first saw it as a teenager, and I still kind of and I still kind of recoil at it now because I am one of those people. I said this in the first episode. I don't think there was anything sexual going on in the original film. I think this was a case of Kong finding something interesting and wanting to possess it, wanting to keep it because it's different. You know, it's like you know a child with a toy almost. He's curious about her and all of that sort of stuff. And the impetus there is she's a sacrifice. Yes. This is the natives putting her out as a sacrifice whether it's to the wind god or to the god of the mountain or, you know, to the, the kraken or, or whatever it might be, it's a sacrifice. She's going to die. That is what is going to happen to this person. And Kong goes 
to get her. And it's like, wait, this is interesting. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. But here in in the seventies. Yeah. There's, they don't hide it. In fact, apparently the sexual interpretation of the original film was becoming more popular at this time. And the filmmakers with this one just ran with it. And they intentionally wrote this as this, like you said, as you said, a weird love triangle and I don't like it. (laughs) It just makes things weird. I'm, I don't have a problem with Dwan being sympathetic toward Kong, but to turn it into this love triangle just feels bizarre, which I think is where the Peter Jackson version, I think did it better by presenting it, not as something sexual, but more as a friendship. Yeah. But that's, that's an intentional element here. And again, this is where it's straddling between that cynical, weird darkness of the seventies and, and the fantastical whimsical fairy tale that they're trying to tell. But that's where you're getting into beauty and the beast and physicality aside, you're supposed to feel for Kong. You know, that was, you know, De Laurentiis, that was his thing, you know, uh, when jaws die, no one cry, but when monkey die, everybody cry. Yes. (laughs) You know, uh, I think that's his quote, but it's It's close enough. (laughs) But it, it, it is interesting because it's not like Kong in the original film didn't do things that, normally would probably make people recoil against him, you know, turn against him. He still ended up being a sympathetic character. And I do think that that was something they were trying to do in this, but I have to admit, I had a little bit of a harder time doing it, even though Kong was doing a lot of the same things in this that he did in the original. Like, he attacks a subway, and you know they do a, a little nod to the original film where he finds the wrong woman and then casts her away. Except in this one, it's not just drop. It's more like slam down. And I'm just like, Oh my gosh, that was brutal Kong. What are you doing? (laughs) I kind of don't like you now. (laughs) And Uh, I thought the original movie was horrific when they, when they did it. Now there's less of the horrific stuff. Most of the casualties that happen on the human side are accidental as he's going through the city. He's looking for her, not intending to kill people. He's not picking up people and putting them in his mouth, no. you know, and uh, or stepping on them and squishing them. Like, he squishes people, though, and they actually not, show you twitching bodies afterward. I'm like, oh, my. But he, he's, he's not he's not grinding his foot into it. No. You know, like he's just stepping, you know, and, and I mean, he kills Fred Wilson because test audiences wanted the bad guy to die. Not killing him would have made a much more ambiguous ending. Yeah. I'm curious if they had stuck with the original ending, if it would have been as endearing of a movie. As it is, I gotta which ask isn't necessarily that much for for a lot of people. But. Yeah, I gotta ask you one thing though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know how you feel about coincidences and stories. Mm-hmm. I've listened to your yep. podcast enough. How do you feel about the fact that Dwan and Jack were just conveniently on the subway that Kong decided to attack? I don't think that was coincidence. I think he was following them. I think he was following okay. their scent. I think he was hunting. Interesting. And using his skills as a hunter. I mean, they don't play it that way. I'm helping the movie right now. Like it's, they don't ever show him sniffing. But I, I think he was trying. He, he was on their trail. Like that was what he was doing. Is he was following them. He saw her as they got into the cab. He saw her as they got out of the cab because of the traffic. He, you know, he he was watching. So, and so King Kong is a stalker. <laughs> is that what you're saying? Well, I mean, he peeks into people's rooms and yeah, and is able to sneak up on them. Okay, so he's a ninja. I yeah, I, I we're not here to talk about plot holes yet or nitpicks, but I mean, when they're in that bar and he goes to make the phone call, Kong 
snuck up on them, reached into the restaurant without her noticing and pulls her out. And Jack doesn't notice until uh, she he hears glass breaking as the hand is leaving the building. <laughs> so that, that's a little bit of a nitpick for me. And I have a, a, one or two others, but yeah. Oh, really? Jimmy says you get a, a no prize for accounting for the train. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's what the no prize does. There are no mistakes. There's only things that you let other people figure out for you after you've made a mistake. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, Fred Wilson. We've been, we've been kind of getting around it a little bit, but he's our Carl Denham in this movie. What was the, the actor's name again? It was something Groden. The Charles Grodin. Charles Grodin. Again, I, I think I know him more by name than you know, th- than his work. <laughs> Again, I, a bigger star I know in the him 70s. From, yeah, he was in Beethoven, I believe it was. Oh, really? The father in the original Beethoven. The, the one about the, the, the dog, not the musician. Uh, <laughs> and then he was in The Great Muppet Caper. Oh, he as was? Lady Holiday's brother. Yeah, he oh. was the, the main bad guy in that movie. Oh, apparently I'm more familiar with him than I thought. But anyway, so we have Fred Wilson here. He's actually was written as a straight villain, but then Groden tried putting some humor into his performance to liven things up and try to entertain the audience until King Kong shows up, you know, halfway through. And I can tell you, it's it certainly, and again, I think it goes back to the fact that this is a 70s film. Unlike Carl Denham, he's not all that likable. He is more of a straight villain, whereas... Carl Denham was certainly a showman and was very determined to do what he wanted to do. And he was reckless, but I don't think he was nefarious in his dealings. Perhaps misguided, but this guy is in it for the money. And he does have some charisma. At first, I didn't think, you know, you're not as fun as Carl Denham because you don't really have the charisma. But as the movie progressed, it got better. But maybe I went into it kind of prejudiced against him because I'm thinking you can't top Carl Denham. <laughs> well, it, it's very they're very different characters. Carl Denham is a character I like. Now it might be because of Son of Kong that I like him, uh, where he starts out and he's just this guy with a dream. I'm going to go and make these movies, and then you realize he's stepping on whoever he needs to. He's putting people in danger to make these movies, you know. And then and then he repents, you know. And then he actually feels bad about what he did to Kong. In, in Son of Kong. And so I, I like Carl Denham as a character. I, I like that they actually fleshed him out and had that kind of character arc going between the, the two movies. Charles Grodin, uh, Wilson, uh, Fred Wilson, at first you think he's just the power-hungry little guy who gets seasick, you know, and so you're laughing at him, you yeah. know, and and then he's kind of just throwing his weight around with, with Jack later on, uh, and you're just like, oh, what a, he's a jerk. But then he just doesn't care about human life. You know, and uh, when when the team that goes out to rescue Duan doesn't come back, we have stuff to do here. We're going to get this oil. You know, that's what's important. And he is really a, a bad, bad person. But I think they set him up. And like you said, I, you know, I, I read the article, too, or the, the book, rather, where they're talking about how Charles Grodin was infusing the humor. That sets it up to make it even more insidious. You don't expect him to not care about human life the way he doesn't care. I don't you think know? you're surprised and when he doesn't. You're not, but you're not expecting quite that evil turn. No. Uh, but when it happens, it fits the character completely. But he's still a weaselly little guy. Yeah. But now he's suddenly an, an easily weaselly little guy. Yeah. In fact, Jack, it's funny because it was Wilson who described Jack as a hippie. And then later on in the film, 
Jack calls him an environmental rapist. Yeah. (laughs) We're all uh, having a lot of fun with our fun little insults, aren't we? (laughs) Yeah. But you know, but that definitely again that goes back to that seventies thing you know environmentalism was becoming more of a thing and you know as we'll talk about more in the the next segment you know this was at a time when there was an oil shortage and it was right after the energy crisis and I think people not only were losing faith in in government you know because of you know everything that would happen with Nixon but also I think this was about the time where people started to gain more of a distrust with corporations particularly big corporations and this film is definitely tapping into that yeah absolutely here's the other thing I never noticed until I read an article last week I think the company name Petrox Petrox Pet Rocks <laughs> yeah. How did I not think of that? Oh that my god. That is my sentiment exactly. How did I not <laughs> notice? Oh my gosh. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I there's no way it's not on purpose. Like it, I, it's on purpose. It has to I, be. I don't know. I don't know how to react to that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but simple. He got his big break creating the Batman 66 TV show. Yes. And the Batman 66 TV show movie that they made is what got him into film, which is what indirectly led to him movie after movie after movie, bringing him to this point to do this movie. Pet Rocks sounds like a Batman 66 kind of a, a corporation. It does not. I think because <laughs> for me, it was it was all about, oh, Petra, which means rock, you know, and then rocks and you're putting it together and it, it, it feels like something like like Sunoco. Or, you know, some of these other gas things that they have out there. It feels so right that you miss that it's so wrong because it's that that pun. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Thanks for the rim shot, Jimmy. <laughs> I want to move on to you know, some thematic things that I was noticing in this. We've been talking a little bit about it with uh, the, cyni- the 70s cynicism that was going on in this. Mm-hmm. There was this... Very interesting exchange about halfway through the movie. It's after they have left the island and they've captured Kong and they're on their way back and they've got Kong in the the super tanker hold, which I will admit is a great idea. I do like that. The the original movie just skirted over how they got Kong back, (laughs) which is totally okay with me. But, you know, this one they actually show you. So Jack is voicing his disapproval to wilson about this whole thing and and wilson says oh don't worry about it you know the the natives aren't going to care that we took kong off the island and the way the conversation went was jack tells him actually they'll miss him a lot wilson says like leprosy and then jack says no you're dead wrong he was a terror and the mystery of their lives and the magic a year from now that'll be an island full of burnt out drunks when we took kong we kidnapped their god no one even thought about that. Actually, I don't think any of the other Kong films have even thought about what the consequences of removing Kong from the island, what the consequences would have been for the islanders. Well, they do it a little bit in Son of Kong, but not much. But the thing is, it's not just their god. I mean, this is the alpha predator. Yes. You know, this is, this is the alpha on the island. And so now you're going to have all of those snakes that are huge <laughs> and giant and fake looking. And, oh, and all of those, I miss the dinosaurs they're, they're gonna, so much. <laughs> I, you know, on, on welcome level seven, we have a thing we call MCUing, 
which is taking something from a comic book and putting in a real world scenario, live action and making it work. I, I feel like that's what we're trying for here. We got a giant ape. Let's get a giant snake. And, you know, it doesn't have to be a lost island kind of thing where all of these species that died out have collected. Yeah. Although I will and, admit it was a bit of a stroke of genius on Semple's part to account for the fact that this is an unknown island in the 70s when we have satellites by having it be covered in a perpetual fog cloud, which then gets used yeah. again in Skull Island, <laughs> which yeah. also took place I in thought, the 70s. <laughs> yeah, uh, there was definitely some Skull Island connections to this movie. Uh, and that's one of the vibes that I like about Skull Island is that it was taking place in the 70s. But anyway, the snakes, they're going to be able to, they, they don't have the alpha predator anymore that's going to stop them from, you know, climbing over the wall it changes just the the whole dynamic of the ecology of the island in in every single kong movie you take kong off the island and something else is there that he's holding back so yeah i mean they're making the sacrifices of their women and that's not good and and that's all that, that wilson is noticing but jack is looking at it big picture take one little piece out and it changes everything which is you know something that also was just kind of coming into light in the 70s with people, regular people becoming aware of what was going on in the environment mm-hmm. and that we do want to protect, mm-hmm. you know, different species because, uh, I remember having a conversation with my dad, like, what if we could just destroy all mosquitoes? <laughs> you know, I've had that conversation then, too, actually. <laughs> and then it's, well, what are the bats going to eat and what are the frogs going to eat? Yeah. And so you, you remove this one piece. Now for Kong, it's, you remove the biggest piece. And, and we've actually seen that happen where you remove wolves from the equation and, the deer population rises up mm-hmm. and and gets out of control. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and then also their religious. Yeah, and you know, that's the life. part that fascinated me the most. The environmental stuff. That that's I wouldn't be surprised if a if a film like this would bring something like that up. But the fact that we're talking about the religion of this, and yeah, I mean, we could look at the natives' religion and say this is superstitious. It's brutal. It's uncivilized. But Jack is saying that Khan's existence on that island, he said it was a terror, but it was also part of the mystery of their lives and the magic. It brought spiritual beliefs to the, these people. And now by meaning. removing, yeah, it brought meaning. Yeah. And by removing that, he's saying they're going to turn to something else. They're going to turn to some sort of vice to fill that void that we have taken from them. And I find that fascinating because you would think. We as civilized people, you know, so-called civilized people, (laughs) would think of this and say, like, why would they want Kong around when they had such a brutal, superstitious religion centered around it? You would think they would rejoice at Kong's absence. But Jack is saying that that's not going to be the case. Now, we don't know because we don't see what happens to the natives after this. Yeah. And, And here's the other thing, though. The family that lost their daughter before Dewan came the last one before Dewan, mm-hmm. you know, they're rejoicing. You know, the, the, the thing that took their daughter is gone. I mean, there, there's a couple different ways you can look at it. You know, you have Jack's perspective, but then you also have the perspective of these different layers of the people. The high priest, what's he going to do? Well, he's out of a job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the family that the high priest took their daughter, you know, last year or whatever it was uh, when they would do these sacrifices, they're they're fine that he lost his job. They they are actually possibly even going to turn against him because he doesn't have the power. Kong is gone. You know he can try and hold on to power maybe, but it does bring up some interesting story possibilities to run with. Mm-hmm. 
Really? You think this is fan fiction waiting to happen? I don't know if I want that fan fiction or not. <laughs> I, I think, Jimmy, you're right, but it very easily could be made into something that's not fan fiction, that's, that's original. Yeah. It doesn't have to be an ape. It could be something else that was taken away. Yeah. So another thematic thing that I noticed while I was watching this movie, and I had contemplated this a little bit before I saw this movie, but it really came to mind with this, specifically because of the unveiling scene, which is the only part of this movie where they they have the much-hyped but little-used life-size robot Kong. The big guy or big one. The big Kong uh, with something like that. Yeah. It's essentially a 40-foot-tall version of the little model that was made by Willis O'Brien for the original movie. I read all about how that thing was put together and everything, and that's essentially what it was. It was a giant version of that. Interestingly, it was covered with 4,000 pounds of Argentine horsehair. Yeah. <laughs> Dino De Laurentiis doesn't do anything small. Not if it's going to get him money. No. Yeah. Unfor- no. Unfortunately, it, like I said, it was a bit ill-advised because it's not all that impressive. It was ambitious. I mean, the idea of building a life-size robot <laughs> model is a great idea, but they it was well beyond the technology of the day. <laughs> It blew, it blew a leak. I mean, there's there just so many problems with it. <laughs> yeah, it, blew, it. It blew a leak in its crotch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it looks like it wet I, itself. Yeah, I, uh, I think uh, one guy said, oh, he's peeing oil. <laughs> but it is ambitious. And less than 10 years later, they added that to the tram ride on the Universal Backlot. Yes, which I wish and I had gone on as a child. It probably would have terrified me, but it would have been great. I did go on this. I am so jealous. So, I am green yeah, as the no, Hulk was, with envy right now. It was cool. I mean, you go on the tram, goes along a dock, and Jaws pops out. There's a tunnel that spins that was featured in a Bionic Man or a Six Million Dollar Man episode, and then you go into uh, <laughs> the landing bay for uh, Battlestar Galactica, oh. and you get, it was really cool, really low key compared to everything they have now. But they are, they managed to make an animatronic Kong that moved fairly realistically. I mean, it, you know, if you, you can, you can actually see on YouTube, they, there's some clips on YouTube that you can find where you can kind of see what it was doing. It was broken the day we went. And so I can't remember what it was that was broken. I think that it didn't tilt. The tram was the, oh. the, the tram parks and then it, the road tilts toward Kong and then his, his arms kind of reach over a little bit and, so I, I think that that bit didn't work, if I remember correctly. But it was cool. You go in, there's all the sounds, there's pyrotechnics and fire. And I don't remember this, but they say that it actually breathed banana. I've smell. heard that. I don't remember that at I all. I bet Dwan got a good nose too, full but... of that breath when oh, Kong decided to blow dryer. <laughs> Which, How again, goes back to that think? weird sexual overtones in this movie. But cause... Oh, my <laughs> goodness, though. That would smell so bad. Yeah, that was what I was like. It's like I don't think I think the romance of that would uh, get ruined by the fact that it probably smelled awful. He had John Barry's musical score though, and it is gorgeous. I mean, oh. that can make him feel romantic, I guess. But I I'm going to tell you right now. I'm glad that you brought that up. John Barry's score is the one part of this movie that I will legitimately say is on par with the original. The oh, I think soundtrack it. in this film is phenomenal. And 
is just as good as anything Max Steiner did in the original. I listen to that score constantly researching for this episode. I tend to prefer this to Max Steiner. What's that, Jimmy? You're accusing me of what? Chronological snobbery? No, no. Okay, maybe a little bit. Max Steiner did great for what he was doing and created a, a whole new thing, you know, with what he was doing. But it, this is fantastic music. This, oh, this is so good. It is. Uh, and it's actually John Barry at his best. Sometimes it can be a little repetitive, but this is one of his better scores that I've listened to. And Yeah, yeah I, and one of the things I love about it is that if you listen to it out of the context of the film, you would probably not believe that that was all in a King Kong movie. Because there's some parts right. of it no, that totally. are just like, this, it was in a King Kong thing? This sounds weird in connection well, to Well, they King asked Kong. him to be romantic, you know? Well, and- not only that, but, you know, there's some guitar riffs and things in there and so much stuff that just doesn't seem like something you would hear in a King Kong film. Yeah. Which is one of the things I, I re- do really like about it. You know, it has a little bit of a pop sound to it, which I think is interesting. But then it's also huge and orchestral. Oh, yes, you know I mean? as it should be. This is a not a favorite, favorite soundtrack of mine, but it's one that I do go back to. Yeah. Uh, sometimes for my writing and stuff like that. Yeah. So, but anyways, yeah. I was saying with that scene, I find it interesting that in this one, they put a crown on Kong when he's unveiled. You know, when they pull up that <laughs> that facsimile of, <laughs> the, the, of the gas pump, which is interesting <laughs> symbolism right there. And that was actually one of those moments when I, I realized that Fred Wilson is in many ways a lot like Mr. Taco from King Kong versus Godzilla, where he's the head of a, well, he's part of a corporation, and he says, oh, the thing that we went out to the island to find, we didn't find. Oh, wait, there's a giant ape? Hey, we can turn him into a mascot and make money. That's essentially what, that was the justification. Oh, my gosh, the oil isn't ready to be used yet, so, you know, we need something, so let's go with the ape. (laughs) But they have a crown on him, and it dawned on me that in almost Every single Kong film, Kong story, the king moniker, the king part of his name, is not what he has on the island. The islanders don't call him that. It's just Kong. King is what is given to him when he is taken off the island and back to New York to be exploited. And I find that interesting. Hmm. I'm not exactly sure what that means. He's being plucked out of it. He's essentially, that's what he is. He, you know, he's the ruler of Skull Island, but they're slapping that name on him as for marquee value almost, you could say, to show him off. And so like, here's this exotic thing that we found on this island. He was the king from where he was from. I think that's even what Carl Denham says in the original film, you know, that he was king from, uh, he was the king where he was from. And then this film takes it a step further by actually putting a crown on him, but it feels like such a mockery when you see it. Are you going back to Gorilla Jesus? <laughs> Gorilla the, Jesus. The, the mockery of the crown and the, <laughs> you say you're king. <laughs> I, I guess in a way I am. Because <laughs> that wasn't the original. That was the only time that he's positioned like that. It was in the original film where it looked like a, it was a cross shape. Yeah, yeah. Elsewhere, he's uh, he's just put into a cage. But it's interesting. I guess you could make that sort of a connection. It's just not a crown of thorns at this point. <laughs> uh, maybe maybe we don't want to make that kind of connection. But. Probably not. The It's not even worthy of a weak connection, as you would say on yeah. your show. <laughs> 
but that is an interesting thought. I never never noticed that that the the king title is, is something that was put on him by the invaders yes. and the kidnappers. Mm-hmm. Which mm-hmm. I do think kind of goes back to a little bit of some of the the colonialist themes that. I think we're an influence on the original film and people have brought up in a lot of the essays that I've been reading that the original film in particular, you know, touches on it where you have Westerners going off to an exotic place and then plucking somebody or something that's exotic out of it and taking it back to their homeland and exploiting it, you know, that sort of a thing. And I could see that being something they would do to try to dress it up and sensationalize it. Like I said, it's an interesting thing to consider. Yeah, what bothers me about that reading in all of them is that that's always punished. Yes. So you you have the 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 essayist or the film student or whatever it is they're bringing that out, but I I feel like they almost never point out that this gets punished. You know, this is shown as wrong. This is shown as something that is bad for everyone involved, and that there's a lot of innocent victims in in that as well. I feel like it's always just pointed out as, hey, look how bad we are, you know, and. And it's not looked at as, hey, look how bad we are. But the movie also believes it's bad, too. Yeah, and there's you, you see evidence of that. There's a, an interesting longstanding theme that, now that I think about it, that you see in all of these Kong films, except maybe Son of Kong, but that's because they don't take him off the island. <laughs> Kiko, stay, Kiko stays yeah. on the island. He's here on Monster Island now, though. Except all he really does now is he, you know, he puts on some clown makeup and entertains the kids because he's such a goofball. <laughs> uh, I was glad to see that he recovered from drowning and then went on to get that, that guest starring role in the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer uh, stop motion. <laughs> show uh the bumble uh, yep, yep. It's, it's funny that you bring that up because my, my friend nick who guested on the the king kong escapes episode pointed out that kong in that movie looks like the bumble <laughs> oh. i guess there's even more connections than we thought hashtag no, it's it, all connected right <laughs> yeah that's the one i mean i haven't listened to that one yet so uh yeah whoever that was great minds yes. they think alike yes yeah. yes they do and you definitely want to have a mind like that of Nick Hayden, let me tell you. <laughs> but yes, but one of the other themes that runs through is Kong is always breaking out and escaping. So he's being exploited. He's essentially being enslaved, but he's always breaking the chains and getting away. Even in a movie that's as silly as King Kong Escapes, he does that. What's interesting about that is almost every time he escapes when someone else seems to be in danger. Yes. And I think that's part of the tragedy of the character when he breaks away and then everything is going to go wrong. But it always starts with Anne or Dewan or whoever in danger. And that's when he works up the courage and works up the strength to, to burst his chains and to break the bars of his stupid looking cage in this <laughs> one. But uh, and, and I guess, I mean, the cage looks like that because. I think that's just the way that the giant Kong that they had yeah. looked. But I guess it limited his mu- his movement some, yeah. I guess. It might have yeah. also Maybe that's been more for show than anything else, which then makes you wonder why Fred Wilson didn't take more safety precautions. But okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nitpicks, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. If the plot holes aren't that big. <laughs> I... I do have another nitpick, oh, and what's that, that is sometimes the special effects. Sometimes the special effects are so good in some areas, and then you have the log scene 
which I think looks better in black and white in the original. Yeah, as different as this movie is, it still does take a lot of beats from the original. The log yeah. scene's one of them. And then there's, at the end, there's some really great work that's happening with the World Trade Center, but there's also some really awful kind of rear projection that's going on, yeah. especially with, with Dewan. Yeah. Whenever they show Dewan and, you know, the camera, and it was, it was Dewan and it was Kong, too, when, when there's the helicopters are moving in the rear projection, but then the camera is moving that's filming Kong and the rear projection, and they just don't match. And yeah. those helicopters just do not look good. Yeah, they don't. Flying in the background. Yeah, when I and, saw that, I was I was thinking to myself, that looks like something that I would see on a TV movie from this time yeah. period, not a big budget Hollywood blockbuster. What the heck? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that was just them having to just do what they could with what they got. Well, um, they also had to make the movie fast. Yeah. It's, yeah. This had a very excel. This had an accelerated production time. You know, they but at the same time, work. when he jumps from tower to tower, that looks so cool. It does. It looks Even so when I was cool. a teenager watching this the first time, I was thinking to myself, you know what? Him jumping from one tower to the other with the guy to dodge the guy with the flamethrower, and like, that does look cool. And that was a great use of the fact that they had a different location because you know, since this takes place in what was then present day, the Empire State Building was no longer the tallest building in New York. It was the World Trade Center. And so that's why they changed the locations and they utilized the fact that it was two towers to their advantage for that yeah, set piece, yeah. which I thought was that great. Was cool. And when he is shot and he's looking at the blood, that was effective. I mean, there, there's some great filmography happening in this movie. This is a very competent and even excellent in some ways movie, but it's just, there's these couple moments where you just like, is that a budget thing? Should they maybe have not done that shot? You know, just let that go. The other thing is, I mean, speaking of the World Trade Center, have you seen the movie? It's not the movie Man on the Wire. Maybe it is. I can't remember. But there's a documentary that they did about the guy who did, who walked across the tightrope wire between the towers. Mm -hmm. And I have not seen that. There's some shots that they have from that movie of these upper levels in that building. He did that before they were done building the World Trade Center. Oh, wow. And so that's how we were able to, to string the line from place to place because they didn't have walls in some of those areas. And as, as Jack is running past all this stuff, it's, it's brand spanking new. Yes. And I've never been there. I've been to the Empire State Building. I have as well. I've never been, been to the, to the World Empire Trade State Center. Building. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've got an elevator story I could tell you sometime about the World Trade or about the uh, Empire State Building. But the World Trade Center, that was brand new. The walls, some of them weren't even done yet as he's running on these upper levels. And it was just, it was interesting because I'd like, I've seen this. Oh, this is actually, he, he's there. He's there. I've seen pictures of this place. <laughs> well, that's pretty cool. <laughs> of course, then this is where people are divided. I've heard people say that it's a very unfortunate choice because of what happened in 2001. Yeah, that was actually a question I wanted to get into, yeah. which is, do you think it's awkward to watch this movie post 9-11? I don't. I really don't. I mean, that was a part of the world at that time, mm-hmm. you know, and, and this is a this is a film that takes place at a time and that they shot in a real place. I don't. I, I, I feel like to ignore this film because of that is to try and erase history. You know, there were people who lived there. There were people who worked there. There were people who died there, obviously. And and I could understand, like, if I had lost someone, I, I maybe I would never be able to watch this movie because I wouldn't want that reminder. But this is a snapshot of a time and a place. Yeah. And I, I think that that, that go, in, in my mind, that goes a long way for me. Mm-hmm. So. 
I would agree with you, but I can understand if it would be hard for some yeah. people to watch it because I, I think I all, I I think someone, all of us I, have very a lot of people who didn't lose someone yeah. who, who still felt like they did. You know, yeah. I mean, the, the emotional weight of what happened was huge and everyone carried it in a different way. Mm-hmm. People who are more connected carried it obviously much heavier for them. There was actually an article in the first issue of G-Fan that was published after 9-11 talking about that. And it's an essay that's always really stuck with me about how he was writing as a kaiju fan and reflecting on the idea that we love all these movies where cities are being destroyed, buildings are being toppled and all of that, and how it did give him at least a little bit of pause, 9-11 did thinking about that was a those were real buildings and real people died and what does that say about the, the movies that i love so much where that's happening all the time and you know stuff like that yeah and yeah. you know i think it's something worth considering but i don't think it should stop people from enjoying them even if there might be a scene or two in some of these films that might hit a little too close to home which I can understand. I mean, heck, even in this movie, I kind of wonder a little bit. I mean, obviously this was years before the 9-11 attacks, but doesn't one of the helicopters after Kong hits it, doesn't it crash against the side of the building or at least come really close? It hits the side. And I think it's one of those controlled falls that helicopters can do. Yeah. But I, but, I looked at that and I thought, mm, that might be a little too close for comfort because the, the planes did hit some of the upper levels of the towers. I remember that quite vividly. I think all of us have very vivid memories of that day. Yeah. The, the thing is, you have times where tragedy and history, after time passes, become entertainment. And that's not great when, when you have real tragedy, real history that becomes this kind of maybe romanticized entertainment. And fortunately, in this movie, now if we were watching something where, you know, it was a fictional movie where this happened and the Trade Center fell, I don't know if I could watch that. To me, this is a landmark in a movie that's showing up and it's, it's, I don't know, it's not quite a celebration because that wasn't the intention for them, but it was, you know, here's this thing, here's this place. And, you know, the reason this takes place in modern day of the seventies was because the filmmakers are like, let's use this, you know, let's, let's use this, these buildings instead of the empire state building. And, and cause the universal one that they were going to do was going to be a remake that took place in the, in the thirties. Yeah. It was going to be a period piece. Yeah. And uh, uh, the Legend of King where, Kong was what it was yeah, called. Mm-hmm. Which, because of that, they decided to change the name to, of this to King Kong, The, the Legend, Legend Reborn. Reborn. Yeah. yeah, just to spite them, which there was some genuine, like, I have a legitimate right to be able to do this on Dina De Laurentiis's part. And yeah. then there was some, I'm also going to spit in your face about this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, Ours yeah. is coming out first. You're going to use the word legend? Okay, so are we. Yeah. So. <laughs> I, like I said, I'll definitely be talking about that a little bit more in a future episode. So anyway, that's, yeah. that's kind of a somber note. But Yeah. Well, to break off of that a little bit, you know what I had forgotten before I watched it, this movie again this time? Renee Auberjoinus no. is in it. That's another somber note, dude. Well, yeah. I, I watched this movie the day before he passed away. You did? Oh, I my gosh. I am it. so sorry. Yeah. It, it was really odd, just the timing of that. Fantastic I, actor, though. Absolutely loved him on DS9. I loved Odo. Although I feel like his voice changed in the years between this movie and DS9 because it didn't sound the same. Oh, it definitely did. I mean, there was over 10 years in between there. But yeah. um, no, I, I remembered him from DS9 and then also uh, Benson. 
he was, uh, I think his, his character's name was Clayton mm-hmm. on Benson, and he was kind of the uptight foil, not a bad guy. He was the guy that got to do things right around. And mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry about yeah, that. But- I didn't realize before I said that. I was like, yeah, that is actually kind of somber, but I was meaning it as yeah. a, you know, I love this guy. Oh, yeah, he just died. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I think he's great in this movie, too. When he's doing the slideshow and he's kind of bumbling around with it. Yeah. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> he takes a character where there probably isn't a whole lot to him and he infuses him with a lot of life. You need great actors it, to do that. You do. And that's what you need for a movie like this, you know, mm-hmm. and he's not over the top and it's just enough. And he's playing the character throughout the whole movie as someone who's just kind of watching and, oh, wow. Uh, hey, this is a thing. <laughs> you you can't get this oil because it's not what you need yet. You got another 10,000 years. Which is only kinda, a moment in geological terms. Yeah. He's just bemused the whole time. He's just, uh, oh, not bemused, uh, amused the whole time. Yes. And, but actually, speaking of oil, and th- you know, this will be a nice way to transition. I made note go. of. I made note of this. There is a very interesting line that Wilson has. I think it's actually in that scene or uh, close to it. It was on the beach. He says, "There's a national energy crisis that demands we all rise above our private selfish interests." <laughs> Speaking to the headlines of the day, because the energy crisis that was going on at the time was an influence on this film. And that's what we're going to talk about next. On to the toku topic for today's episode, which is the 1973 oil crisis. Because one of the things that differentiates this movie from previous Kong films, in particular the original, is that our expedition is not looking for a place to film a movie, you know, an exotic location for a movie. It is about finding oil. But that is a point that I, I forgot to talk about, that I had a thought about it today. When I was watching it, there are these brilliant, beautiful Vista shots on location. They are doing in this movie what Carl Denham wanted to do yes. <laughs> in the other movie. They're, they're there, they're out there, and they're shooting this beautiful, beautiful scenery. Oh, I yes. didn't realize it was Hawaii, so I was a little less impressed when I realized, oh, it's Hawaii. But um, <laughs> Someone is, is unimpressed with Hawaii? What? <laughs> okay, less impressed because they weren't like someone f- somewhere further off is what yeah. I'm saying. Though they're, they're out there doing what he intended to do. So anyway. Sorry. Yeah. So it's interesting because this movie came out in 1976, which was actually three years after the oil crisis started and a little and about two and a half after it had ended. But it had long-standing rippling effects throughout not only the rest of the 70s, because there was a second oil crisis in 1979, but you know, throughout several decades after this. The crisis began in October 1973 when you had the 12 members of OPEC, which is a name I'm sure all of us have heard, but I, for the longest time, never really understood what it stood for. It stands for the Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Countries, and they put an oil embargo on nations it thought were supporting Israel during the Yom Kippur War, which was in 1973. It's one of those super-fast impossible to win wars that Israel miraculously won. (laughs) These nations that were targeted by the embargo included Canada, which you're from Canada originally, aren't you, Ben? Well, I'm actually from Indiana, but then before I turned one, we moved to Canada. Okay. Yeah. Oh, oh, that's interesting. I see. I had thought that you were born and raised in Canada. I was born a Hoosier and then raised in Canada. Ah, born a Hoosier, raised a Canuck. I'll get it. (laughs) But then also Japan, 
which is noteworthy because Japan is a gets talked about a lot on this show. The Netherlands, the UK, and the US, obviously. And then it was later expanded to include Rhodesia, which is a country I had to look up. It's actually a country that doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> it was in Africa. And then Portugal and South Africa. This came about because throughout the 20th century, especially in the US, oil was replacing coal as the primary energy source. And it was cheap to import it from, from the Middle East, and it was profitable for those nations. In fact, in 1959, President Dwight Eisenhower said, as long as Middle Eastern oil continues to be as cheap as it is, there is probably little we can do to reduce the dependence of Western Europe on the Middle East. And he, in fact, he imposed quotas on foreign oil that stayed in place from 1959 to 1973, so right up to the crisis. Critics called it, I think this is a little funny given some of the current political climate, they called it the Drain America First plan. (laughs) And some argued that it actually contributed to the, the decline of U.S. oil production in the early 70s. And President Nixon then built off of that by putting in a price ceiling on oil as demand increased and then production decreased. And then he abolished the quotas in 1973. Oil imports to the U.S. doubled from 1970 to 1973 and reached 6.2 million barrels a day by 1973. When the U.S. and then, and this is something I talked about in the King Kong 33 episode, uh, talking about the the gold standard. Because in 1971, the U.S. and several other countries went off of the gold standard, which affected oil production because they started pricing the oil on gold instead of dollars. This is not an economics podcast by any stretch of the imagination, but I have to throw this out there because this oil crisis, that's what it boils down to. It's all about money. But the Bretton Wood Agreement fixed the price of gold at $35 an ounce. But then after that, after it was undone, it jumped to 455 by the end of the 70s. So OPEC started pricing their oils based on that. Also contributing to this, you know, we mentioned that the U.S. was supporting Israel at the time during the Yom Kippur War. Specifically, what was going on is Nixon authorized what was called Operation Nickelgrass. I always find some of these military operations that have kind of funny sounding (laughs) names. (laughs) Operation Nickelgrass. (laughs) What? (laughs) It's like Operation Dumbo Drop. I mean, (laughs) it's right up there. Yeah, I, I think sometimes if the operation name actually has something to do with the actual operation, that's accidental. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's not intentional. Yeah, I, I still don't get the idea behind this one. But anyway, he authorized that October 12, 1973, which airlifted weapons and supplies to Israel during the Yom Kippur War. And then the Soviets sent more weapons to Syria and Egypt, who were the ones who were fighting Israel at the time. Arab oil producers cut production by 5% the day after this, although Saudi Arabia didn't join until the U.S. gave $2.2 billion in aid to Israel. And then by December, oil production dropped by 25% and caused a global (laughs) recession that caused friction between the U.S. and its European allies because they blame the U.S. for bringing this on them (laughs) thanks to supporting Israel. I shouldn't be laughing, but it's. Just, it, it, I guess I'm still laughing at Operation Nickelgrass. Well, I mean, there is a sense of ridiculousness to all of this, though, where it's just so much relies on these fragile relationships, these tenuous dependencies. This couldn't have happened if the U.S. hadn't put themselves in that 
position, we're getting our oil here. We need to, we have this dependency on oil that we have to have and we're getting it cheap from over there and all it's not cheap anymore. Global politics is ridiculous just by its nature. <laughs> yeah. There are points where I look at this and I keep thinking, did any of these world leaders ever get off the playground? I'm just saying. <laughs> just a new playground. Yeah. <laughs> a very large one with bigger consequences. Much, yeah, yeah, yeah. Much bigger stakes. Yeah. Getting back to the the topic at hand, Arthur Burns, who was the chairman of the Federal Reserve at the time, explained in 1974 that the, quote, manipulation of oil prices and supplies by the oil exporting countries came at a most inopportune time for the United States. In the middle of 1973, wholesale prices of industrial commodities were already rising at an annual rate of more than 10%. Our industrial plant was operating at virtually full capacity and many major industrial materials were in an extremely short supply. <laughs> so when we were talking about how you know the 70s was a very cynical time, I think this was part of it. I definitely do think this contributed to it as well when we start getting into the effects of this. You know, we're talking about well, the, it, you know, kind of yeah. the macro things, but this had a profound yeah. effect on a lot of people's personal lives as well. It did. And here's the other thing, though. Because now we're stepping into a, a, a time period where the news is reporting on this stuff and it's much more available and they're they're putting it out there in ways that people didn't have in their living room before. So that 70s jadedness is coming from the Vietnam War is in their living room. This stuff that they weren't aware of and couldn't have been aware of before unless they were reading newspapers or you know that kind of thing, they were blissfully unaware of it. And now here it is. It affects my life. And not only that, I know what's going on. There's things that are happening that I am watching and hearing Dan Rather talk about. The 70s, I think the jaded cynicism came from the availability of information where they realized, oh, things aren't as good as it was presented to us or as I thought it was because I only knew about my town. Which makes me wonder, Jimmy, you were around in the 70s. How did you avoid that jadedness? <laughs> Star Wars, huh? Anyway, <laughs> moving on. The, this embargo lasted until March 1974, so it, it was officially in force for about five months. When it was lifted after negotiations at the Washington Oil Summit, but since Israel didn't withdraw to the 1949 armistice line, most scholars say the embargo was a failure because the whole point of this was to pressure Western nations to stop supporting Israel and then force Israel to give up the land that they that they were controlling, which is ironic given the, the profound effects that some of which are still being felt today <laughs> that it had. Yeah, yeah. The intended effect was a failure, but the harm that was intended to be inflicted was not. Yes. So it yes. was a it was an effective weapon. Yes, so that actually, that was a weapon. term that I came across when I was researching this, which is the oil weapon. Oh, that the oil was the weapon. actual yeah, yeah. term. But none of the targeted countries implemented any noteworthy policy changes. In fact, for the U.S., they were more concerned that the Middle East would be a superpower confrontation with the Soviet Union than they were concerned about the oil. Right. But the most immediate effect that the embargo had was the price of oil quadrupled in 1974. It went from three U.S. dollars to 12 U.S. dollars per barrel or $75 per cubic meter 
To put that, say, in 2018 money, that's going from $17 to $61. Then adjusting for inflation, oil prices went up from $25.97 per barrel in 1973 to $46.35 per barrel in 1974. When by comparison, the inflation-adjusted oil price in 2018 was $70.62 per barrel. Some scholars say the 1973 oil price shock and the accompanying 1973 to 1974 stock market crash was the first discrete event to have a persistent effect on the U.S. economy since the Great Depression. The Fed raised and lowered interest rates so much at this point that businesses didn't know how to respond, so they kept prices high, and this worsened inflation, which was already at 10%, and it kept them from hiring new employees. We know a little bit about that now, you know, because we had a nice little recession not too long ago. <laughs> yeah. Global politics is just ridiculous. Yes. Like, how does this all work? And, and how do you, can you stop it? You know, does it, yeah. but now we're getting into topics of free will. And Yeah. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> yeah. There was an increased demand to address these threats to U.S. energy security. Internationally, prices changed competitive positions for many industries, such as automobiles. Yeah, the automobile industry had a huge shakeup because of this. This was about the time when people started, they weren't buying the big gas-guzzling cars anymore. This is when companies like Toyota and Honda and Volkswagen were becoming more popular because they made smaller, more fuel-efficient cars. Yeah. Oil companies sought new ways to increase oil supplies, going so far as to search in rugged terrain like the Arctic, which definitely ties in with the movie because what are they doing? They're going off into the Pacific to an island that supposedly has an untapped oil supply that they can use. The problem is, is that in reality, it takes five to ten years to develop new fields before they can have any significant production. <laughs> Or 10,000 years. Yes. <laughs> well, we always, you know, it's like Scotty, you know, you always multiply your estimates by 10, you know, or in this case, a thousand. Yeah, yeah. The average price of a gallon of regular gasoline in the U.S. rose 43% from 38.5 cents in May 1973 to 55.1 cents in June 1974. Now, here's where it starts getting. Really crazy and interesting. As a result, state governments asked citizens to not hang Christmas lights that year. And there were calls by politicians for a national gasoline rationing program. And the Christmas lights thing just gets to me. I, yeah. I, I, I mean, this was before you were born, but I would love to hear from people about what the Christmas of 73 was like. Did people actually not hang Christmas lights? I think they had to not, but you know, this is, this is like, you know, do your part. This is mm -hmm. recycle your metal. This is plant your garden. This is don't put up Christmas lights because you don't need to use that extra energy. Oh, you did J uh, Jimmy. You didn't put lights up that year. Huh. I guess I'm not surprised. You know, being a NASA engineer and all of that, you, you get these things, former NASA engineer. Anyway, <laughs> President Nixon asked gasoline retailers to not sell gasoline on Saturday nights or Sundays. If the weekend came around, you didn't have a full gas tank, you were uh, out of luck. And 90% of gas station owners complied. 
And this is the part that everyone remembers. This is what produced the infamous long lines of motorists waiting to fill up their cars while they still could. That's the part of this energy crisis that I hear people talk about the most was the insane long lines at gas yeah. stations. Well, and this happened on on September 12th, 2001. Yes. You had the lines, you had gas prices jumping up to five, six, seven. I mean, gas station owners who did that actually were going to face prosecution potentially. I don't know whatever actually happened from that, mm. but um, for price gouging, it was the fear. It was just the fear. Like we, what do we do? Yeah. We have to do something. Uh, the the long lines i i don't obviously don't remember the long lines happening myself but i do remember as a child reading i think it was ziggy or it might have been herman but it's w- w- one of those single panel comic strips and my dad had a, some collections of them and i remember reading one of them and, and seeing the picture and just asking my dad what is this why why what's going on there and he told me all about all the stuff like the some of the other stuff they did like the license plate numbers and yes. things like that and yes um, uh, I'll get into that here in a few minutes, but yeah, the license plate thing, that was, yeah, no, oh man. But my dad explained to me all of, you know, what was going on with all of that. And I just remember being fascinated and of course I missed it all. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you were born at just the right time, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> to avoid well, most yeah. of it. <laughs> but by February of 1974, so we're getting close to your birthday now, if I remember correctly, perilously close to your birthday. The uh, October, uh, October yeah. 74 is my yeah. birthday. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The American Automobile Association reported that 20% of U.S. gas stations had no fuel. That just blows my mind. <laughs> it's just crazy. And America's you know, It just na- shows how tenuous things are. I mean, yeah. it, how easily things that we rely on could go away and what happens. Yeah. America's natural gas reserves dwindled from $237 trillion in 1974 to $203 trillion in 1978. I mean, that doesn't seem like it's all that drastic, but it's a more than 10% there. That's a lot in just four years. Price controls made things worse in the U.S. This was crazy. You want to talk about splitting hairs here. Oh, my gosh. It limited the price of old oil as an oil that had already been discovered before the embargo got put in place, while new oil could be sold at higher prices to encourage investment. Unsurprisingly, old oil was withdrawn from the market to create greater scarcity. Ironically, the rule was created to uh, encourage oil exploration, kind of like what we saw in the movie, oil exploration, finding new supplies, and it discouraged the development of alternative energy. I mean, come on. This is like increasing the price of a food item because of you know, the expiration date is sooner or something, you know, or, you know, the process by date, you know, was sooner. I mean, that's just so crazy. (laughs) A short-term federal organization called the Federal Energy Office, which was headed by a guy named William E. Simon, allocated oil to states to coordinate with the embargo. And he had to deal with truck driver strikes in December of 1973 because they were hampering the the supplies that were going out to the states. And what, what got really crazy is these actually got violent because non-striking truckers in a couple, and I believe it was Pennsylvania and Ohio actually got shot by the striking truckers. Mm. But no, you were talking about the license plate system. Yeah. That was part of several rationing systems for fuel that got put into place because of this. And the one you're talking about, it was called the odd even system. 
If your car's license plate ended in an even number, you could fill up your gas tank at a gas station on the even numbered calendar days. And if you had a license plate that ended in an odd number or you had a vanity plate, you could fill it up on the odd numbered calendar days. That's something actually that I experienced. This is the late 80s, but went to Mexico City. And they had a similar system like this where you could only drive your car in the city uh, on certain days based on your license plate. I never thought about it, but I, I wonder if they got the idea from this. I wouldn't be surprised, honestly. Some states also ha- used color flags at stations to denote the, the fuel availability at that station. Did you ever hear about any of that? No, no. I found a picture of it actually online while I was researching. So if you saw a green flag, it was unrationed supply. If it was yellow, it was rationed or restricted. And if it was red, they, they had nothing. <laughs> They're out of stock. Now, here's something. This actually... This I know I, about, yeah. Yeah, this I actually experienced. It, you know, part of my lifetime, there was a national speed limit imposed by the Emergency Highway Energy Conservation Act during this time. And it stayed in effect until November 1995 when it was ended by President Clinton. But it mandated a national speed limit of 55 miles an hour. Yeah, I, I remember this. I had no idea whatsoever. And that, that was 20 years. I, I would love to know why they left it in place for that long. The intention was still better mileage. And so that 55 miles per hour, you got better mileage at 55 than you would at 75. They just kept it. And, and I, the, I don't know what the reason was that they repealed it, honestly, other than people wanted to go faster. And so they were. And so I was going to say, you know, uh, yeah. I remember I-69 over in Indiana. I mean, you can drive 75 miles an hour on that thing now. <laughs> Some people yeah, go faster no, it, than that. So. <laughs> So what's interesting then is once that was lifted, <laughs> the joke is, so once they went from 55 miles per hour to 65 miles per hour, so people were just going to drive 75 instead. You know, <laughs> Before they were driving 65 because it was 55, and now that it's 65, they're going to yeah. drive 75. <laughs> I'm guilty. <laughs> and then something else that they implemented, and oh my gosh, as a born and raised Hoosier boy, this whole thing annoys me to begin with. I don't know about you, Ben, but you know, you grew up in Canada. Is daylight savings time a thing in Canada? Yeah. Yeah. Year round daylight savings time was implemented from January 6th, 1974 to October 27th, 1975. Although there was a break from October 27th, 1974 to February 23rd, 1975, when uh, the country did observe standard time. But this actually sparked some controversy and some criticism because it forced a lot of kids to travel to school before sunrise. So I guess some parents didn't appreciate that. So the old rules got put back into place in 1976. <laughs> well, and that's that's still a concern with daylight saving, but yeah. that's a whole other topic. Yeah. Now, these little details, when I saw this, are like, I think they got some interesting marketing people working in the government at this time. Well, actually, it was the Advertising Council, excuse me. They started a conserve energy campaign that had the tagline, don't be fuelish. (laughs) Ha ha. (laughs) And many newspapers carried these advertisements featuring cutouts that could be attached to light switches that read, last out, lights out, don't be fuelish. (laughs) (laughs) Just 
cracked me up. I don't remember any of that. Do you remember? Do you have any recollection of stuff like that? I do. The public service announcements that were on TV and Saturday morning stuff where they'd have, you know, the more you know. I guess it wasn't the more you know. It was uh, one to grow on. That's what it was. Oh, was growing up. okay. But, I don't remember that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the big push was, you know, conserve energy, turn off lights, do this, mm-hmm. do that. And that stuff I remember being ingrained as a child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was on TV. It was in curriculum for school and yeah, it was everywhere. Yeah. If you were a NASCAR fan, you were probably a little bit disappointed at this time because NASCAR reduced their race lengths by 10%. But if you were not a NASCAR fan and got dragged along to a race, <laughs> you were very happy because it was 10% shorter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and new fuel economy standards were passed by Congress in 1975 and that required automakers to raise their fuel mileage. This just seems crazy to me. Raise their fuel mileage from 13.5 miles per gallon to 27. And it's actually supposed to get doubled again by 2025. The idea that there that people were mostly driving cars that only got 13 miles to the gallon just sounds crazy to me. <laughs> but my lifetime has been spent post-energy crisis. Right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So a few other interesting consequences that came about because of the energy crisis. The uh, Department of Energy got started in 1977 because of this. President Nixon implemented Project Independence to promote energy independence in the U.S., which is still a thing that gets talked about now, energy independence. Peter Grossman has argued that American energy policy since the crisis have been dominated by crisis thinking that promote short-term and one-shot fixes that ignore the technology and market realities. Instead, they favor solutions that are politically expedient but have poor prospects. And I do think that is still a thing. People still have freaked out in my own lifetime about Middle Eastern oil and and so-called dependence on Middle Eastern oil and all that. I mean, I have very vivid memories of when Desert Storm started, and it was all because of Middle Eastern oil. And again... It's all, it all comes back to the dollar. It all comes back to money. The almighty dollar. It all, yep. And, but this, the short-term band-aids, that's, that's the problem. Mm-hmm. Just here's the short-term band-aid that makes us feel better right now, but doesn't actually connect to the root problem. Yeah. And, and honestly, that's, that's a big part of, you and I were talking about the okay boomer thing, you know, mm-hmm. where you, especially, I guess, maybe it's not just American youth, but. I would say especially American youth is looking at all these problems. And this is every generation, by the way. Every generation inherits problems from the previous generation, not thinking ahead. And all the stuff you're talking about right here is stuff where they weren't thinking ahead. They were thinking about what is the fix for right now. That's not politics. That's that's humanity. Oh, yeah. You know, that's <laughs> just our, our, our natural inclination is fix the quick problem and the big problem that could be taken care of later by fixing something big now, I'm not going to fix the big thing now. I'm going to fix the small thing now Mm -hmm. and feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. And then you have that snowball effect. Mm -hmm. You still see that going on today. And the the crisis brought a shift in NATO because many countries, as we mentioned before, distanced themselves from the U.S. and its foreign policy in the Middle East because they wanted to avoid getting hit with the boycott. You know, the embargo. Ironically, Europe and Japan were also dependent on the U.S. to secure energy sources. <laughs> Secretary of State Henry Kissinger negotiated an Israeli troop withdrawal from parts of the Sinai Peninsula on behalf of the Nixon administration. And the promise of more negotiations for a settlement between Israel and Syria was enough to help lift the embargo in March 1974. Interestingly, 
and my, as I mentioned before, this ended up kind of happening later with Desert Storm, but there have been declassified documents that have revealed that the crisis was such a blow to the U.S.'s Cold War efforts, which were focused on China and the USSR. They learned that now small nations could strike a blow against them, and there were talks of taking military action in the Middle East to stabilize the situation. However, their intelligence warned that, quote, the American occupation would need to last 10 years as the West developed alternative energy sources and would result in the total alienation of the Arabs and much of the rest of the third world. I don't want to get too pol uh, into too much about modern politics, but I think we ended up seeing something akin to that more recently. Yeah, it's kind of proven correct. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it didn't even go far enough with that. The U.S. remains supportive of Israel since only 12% of the U.S. oil supply came from the Middle East while European nations shifted to a more pro-Arab stance because they got 80% of their oil from there. <laughs> Makes sense. Today, OPEC controls 42% of the world's oil supply. It also controls 61% of oil exports and 80% of proven oil reserves. Their power has decreased over the decades, but you know they still they've got a pretty good hold on a lot of stuff. Obviously, many Americans switch to smaller, more fuel-efficient vehicles, like we were talking about. World oil production is now actually 50% higher than it was in 1973, and despite only 10% of U.S. oil coming from the Middle East, the U.S. has since seen incursions in the region as national threats, as we've been talking about. In fact, Jimmy Carter in 1980 for his State of the Union uh, was quoted as saying, an attempt by any outside force to gain control of the Persian Gulf region will be regarded as an assault on the vital interests of the United States of America. Such an assault will be repelled by any means necessary, including military force. Again, I say Desert Storm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But now, interestingly, Ben, the U.S. imports most of its oil from your sort of native Canada. <laughs> <laughs> what I call it that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there you go. Like we've been saying, this film is steeped in the 70s, and the oil crisis was part of it. Now, obviously, as the film goes on, I think the, well, actually, the, the oil connection doesn't completely disappear. Even after the they oil connection off. disappears as the people who are connected to it disappear. Mm -hmm. But then as they become more prevalent at the end, uh, it comes back. It's clearly there for, you know, anyone who saw this in 1976 or 77, they did not like Fred Wilson oh, because no. he represented, <laughs> he represented the people who were saying, Hey, we're going to jack the prices up to 58 cents, which you say it out loud I'll right take now. Like, I'll take 58 yeah. yeah, I was going to say, I'll take 58 cents per gallon now. <laughs> I actually, and this is funny, I remember telling some youth group kids 10 years ago, I said I could remember a summer when I was in high school where for about a day or two, gas prices dropped to 90 cents a gallon in some small towns in Indiana. And they thought I was crazy and super old. Yeah, no, I, I remember driving around trying to find gas stations that were under a dollar. You know, you just, oh, hey, well, I'm not going to go there. It's a dollar ten. you know, yeah. and, and I remember being 87 cents. Now, I am old, okay? You know, <laughs> as I said before, I was born in, I was born in 74, but... Would this be a good um, point for me to say, okay, boomer? <laughs> yeah, I guess. But that you expect, and, and that was one of the things that's interesting, how gas prices and milk prices used to go hand in hand. 
Yes. <laughs> uh, but now they don't so much. He's got some outliers now. You can get gas. You know, I was feeling good about the gas that I got because it was two thirty-eight, I think, a couple of days ago. And milk, though, I was able to get for one sixty-nine. It's not the same as it used to be, but it used to be a gallon of gas, gallon of milk were just about the same. Well, I think that just about wraps things up for us. Thank you again, Ben, for joining me here on the island to talk about this. Some would say underrated movie. I don't know so much. Like I said, I do like it more than I remember the first time. Can you call a movie that made back its budget and then is considered a financial hit? Can you call it underrated? I guess you can. But this movie was not a bomb. It was not a failure. No. This is a movie that it's not Waterworld by any stretch. This is a movie (laughs) that they spent a lot of money on and they made a whole lot of money back. Yeah. It was big Hollywood again. Mm -hmm. It was spectacle again. Uh, Underrated, I think we can use that adjective maybe just because nobody knows about it now or cares about it. Not as much, I would say. It's a little hard to find now. You know, the, the DVD isn't necessarily the easiest one to find. The sequel is even harder to find, which, just to let everybody know, the next big discussion episode next month will be the, I would say, ill-advised sequel called King Kong Lives from 1986. I'll be joined once again by author John LeMay, who, as I've said before in some previous episodes, I think is the only person I know who likes that movie. (laughs) Have you seen it, Bill? I'm a little bit... Yeah, yeah, I'm a little bit disappointed I don't get to be a part of that. And then I realized that means I don't have to watch it again. So, <laughs> hey, uh, if you want, you can watch it again and send me feedback. Stay on my shelf. Wow. You're always it's, welcome to watch it and then send feedback. I'll re- gladly read it on the air. I remember when that movie came out. That was early high school for me, and I was just starting to become aware of, like, pop culture press, for mm-hmm. lack of a better term, and people talking about this movie, not just at the commercial for the movie, but I was reading film reviews in the in the newspaper, and I was reading articles in Starlog. <laughs> yes, yep. and so that's what you have to look forward to for the next big episode. And then the the next episode after this one will be another mini sode, another mini analysis. This time it will be the 1956 Toho classic, The Mysterians, which, if I remember correctly, Jimmy is a uh, one of your favorites, right? <laughs> Uh, the first of the pseudo trilogy, you say? We'll talk about that a little bit more ne- uh, next time, I think. So, Ben, before we wrap up, uh, feel free to do some shameless self promoting. I know you got a lot of projects going on. All right. On. Shameless self promoting. Specifically, I'm going to go podcast self promotion, although you can find me on Amazon with some of like, my graphic novels and comic books that I've written. Let's start with Welcome to Level 7, which is a podcast about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. If you like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. or the Marvel movies, we cover everything as we get to it. So there's some Netflix stuff we haven't talked about yet. Yeah, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., all that stuff, WelcomeLevel7.com. Strangers and Aliens is my podcast that you've been on. Yes. Where we've talked about Godzilla, oh, and oh, the trilogy. 2014 and King of the Monsters. Oh, yeah, you, did, you didn't come on to talk oh, about the Oh, and Colossal. You had me on for Colossal. Colossal, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, we talk about pop culture stuff in light of our Christianity and spirituality. That's that podcast. And then sort of newer is Supersonic Pod Comics, supersonicpodcomics.com. This is a superhero audio drama series that we are producing. We're on hiatus right now. We're going to come back end of January, beginning of February with some new episodes. But four different superhero stories that are leading toward a big crossover in the end of the season. 
no kaiju stuff in there except references to a fictional movie series called King Kaiju. So (laughs) I like it. I like it. By the way, Reverend Mufune, the island's chaplain, is a is a huge fan of Strangers and Aliens. Oh, nice. Glad glad to hear that. When Jimmy gives me the the tour, I can stop by maybe the chapel. Oh, yeah. All right. Excellent. But yeah, those are the the three big things. Oh, comic book time machine. I talk about comic books when I can. But (laughs) I do have some episodes about Godzilla, the Marvel comic series. Yes, uh, I listened to all of those. So, Ben, you got any last words for us? I do. I do. Actually, I've got some some words for you, Jimmy. Jimmy, buddy. You know, we're going to be great friends. I'm a Libra. What sign are you? No, wait, don't tell me. I bet you're an Aries, aren't you? Of course you are. I knew it. That's just wonderful. Oh, boy. Cue credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nathan Marchand. If you enjoy the show and want to join the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Your message could be read on a future episode of the show. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter, where our handle is the Monster Isla One. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASA Jimmy. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wander on the Offensive, live edit by B33J, Sarax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus and The Open Way Battle with the Colossus by Kowotani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus. It can be downloaded from ocremix.org. All film and audio clips belong to their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, and other fine podcatchers. Please rate and review the podcast to help spread the word about the show. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara!